0: Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your word functions and works. And uh, Lord, we recognize that in the study of your word and meditating on your word and, and listening to your spoken word by your spirit, that, that by this and through this, Lord, we are grown and nurtured in our faith. And that's what we pray this morning. Would you nurture the faith that we have present? Father, even if it's, if it's very little faith, I ask that you would nurture it. If it's a great faith, Father, would you nurture and grow that and and do in our hearts what, what needs to be done so that we, for you, Lord, can be fruitful in this world. We thank you for this great book. We thank you for the time we've been able to spend in it and ask that this last study this morning would itself be fruitful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to break this up, and as the uh, title up there might suggest, there are three areas we're going to look at, kind of an outline for Deuteronomy 32, 33, 34. The bungling, the blessing, and the burial of Moses. And we'll start with the bungling, beginning in verse, oh, along about verse 48. So let's start there, chapter 32. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day. Which day was that? The day that he had given the blessing. He had had sung the song of, of Moses. He had taught the song. He had taught the people. Was it a 24 hour period? Was it several days? I don't know. But the entire book of Deuteronomy was given as you know as one long sermon to the people of Israel. They stood. They listened through the whole thing. And on that same day after he finished giving that great oration, that great sermon. On that day the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 49. Go up to this mountain of the Abarim. Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die. Die on that mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron your brother died on Mount and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me. In the midst of the sons of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. Now this is just amazing. The bungling of Moses in Moses' lifetime that we see detailed in the scripture. We know of two things that he did that you could consider bungling, that you could consider bungling or, or wrong or sin. One was the murder of an Egyptian. Now he did it to defend a fellow Israelite, and yet still it was murder. He wasn't told to do it, he wasn't encouraged to do it, or or led to do it by the Lord. He just did it acting on his own. The only other time we see in Moses' entire history of dealing with this obstinate people, the one other rebellious act of Moses, is what God refers to here. And it's not the murder of the Egyptian that would keep Moses out of the promised land. It's this mistake right here. It's the failure of Moses, the debacle. You may recall, we studied back in Exodus and then in Numbers. There were two times where Moses dealt with a rock. It's interesting because we've just finished looking at the song of Moses that we call the Great Rock Song. Because it's all about the rock who is Christ. Five times in the song, Moses refers to the rock. The rock who has kept us. the rock Our rock is not like their rock. We've been studying that the last couple of Sundays. But Moses though he sings about the rock His failure was at the rock Two separate instances Where Moses came face to face with the rock And the people were thirsty The first was in Exodus chapter 17 Verses 6 and 7 You can go back and look at that But it's at a place called Massa And God told Moses Strike the rock The rock was to be struck Take your staff, Moses, go up to the rock and strike it hard. Moses did so and immediately water gushed out of the rock and the children of Israel were taken care of. Their thirst was quenched by that water. And the water poured out. And we talked about this back in the study of Exodus. It spoke of beautifully the first coming of Messiah. If Christ is the rock, then of course the rock would be struck. And the rock was struck at Calvary. Many, many years, centuries after Moses' day, Jesus was crucified on the cross. The first time he came, the rock was struck. And so God told Moses, I want you to strike the rock. As Jesus was struck, water and blood poured from his side. But there was a second time in the wilderness, spoken about in Numbers chapter 20, the rock that was at Mirabah, at Mirabah. And at this point, God said to Moses, the people are thirsty, they're complaining, they're whining, I hear them, I want you to speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock, speak to it. But Moses was angry with the people, he called them morons, that's kind of a Greek alliteration, but he called them moros, you fools, you rebels, you stiff necked people. And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock again. Now in type, if he had done what God told him to do, it would have been a perfect picture, prophetically, of the second coming of Jesus. Because it's only in the first coming that the rock would be struck, that Christ would be struck on the cross. In the second coming of Christ, and with the advent of the the grace, the age of grace, the rock is only spoken to and living waters will flow. In our lives, we don't have to strike the rock. We don't go and, and hit Christ hard. We speak to the Lord. And living waters flow forth by His Holy Spirit. And in the second coming of Christ, we're told, Zechariah 14.8, that in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Jesus will set up that throne in Jerusalem, and living waters will flow from the throne, and the rock is to be spoken to. The picture is awesome. Which is why the first time God said, strike the rock, and the second time he said, speak to the rock. But Moses was angry the second time, and didn't listen and you know what he did he struck the rock he messed up the picture and that's the reason why it was a problem for God anger is not the issue although the Bible tells us be angry and don't sin it wasn't the fact that Moses was frustrated it was what he did he misrepresented God to the people and here's the danger of that when we misrepresent God we rob people of the message that God wants to send to them When we take God's message and twist it for our own means, when we use it for our own advantage or our own personal ideas, we mess up what the Lord wants to get across. And by misrepresenting God, Moses marred a message of the Messiah. He messed up the picture. And because of this, God tells Moses, You shall see the land, verse 52, at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Moses wasn't allowed to go in. The greatest prophet in the entire history of Israel would not go into the promised land because he misrepresented God. Now, what's interesting is that after this, I think the more typical human response to being uh, set aside as he is, To being held back, to being disciplined, as Moses was being disciplined by the Lord, the typical human response would be kind of a sulking. I mean, I know with my own kids, when I get on them, immediately they go into this pattern of, uh, you know, woe is me. If they bungle it, then they get kind of down on themselves. That's not what Moses does. Beginning in chapter 33, Moses then goes to part two of our outline, he starts blessing. He blesses. Verse 1 tells us this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And this is important, gang, because it's the first mention in Scripture of this phrase, the man of God. This is the first time in all of our studies through the first five books that the phrase man of God has been applied to anybody. And here it's applied to Moses. And it's wonderful, it's significant, because the true man or woman of God is someone who seeks to bless. Someone who wants to bless others. It's in the context of Moses desiring to and getting ready to bless the children of Israel that he is called a man of God. And I wonder, how about you? And how about me? Are we among those who are blessers? Or are we receivers? Am I one who is looking for ways to bless other people? Or am I looking out for my own blessing? Am I angry with others when my blessing has been stolen or when I haven't gotten what I feel like I'm supposed to get in this world? You see, the true man or woman of God is one who blesses others. I was listening this morning while I was eating my breakfast to David Jeremiah preaching about the fruit of the Spirit and once more reminding me he he was just saying it was a wonderful message and I won't give it to you right now because we have our own message but David Jeremiah said in in the fruit of the Spirit what God does and what we forget that he does sometimes and, and study John 15 to see this what we forget is that he prunes us and pruning is not always comfortable and sometimes it hurts and sometimes when we're not getting blessing flowing in our lives when we're being pruned as Moses was being pruned before the children went into the promised land As Moses was pruned discipline wise Sometimes when we're being pruned We don't see how we can possibly bless others And yet God prunes us so that we can bear fruit And that fruit is that desire That compassion to bless other people Moses is facing his death He's going to go up to the top of the mountain And he's going to die there But before he climbs the mountain and dies He looks out over Israel This obstinate people Who have been a pain in the neck for 40 years And he begins to bless them Another great leader who faced his death did the same thing. For you may recall, of all the things Jesus said on the cross, John 19, he's hanging up there between the thieves, and Jesus speaks and says to his mother standing nearby, and his best friend John, the disciple, he says, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. What was he doing? He was making sure mom was taken care of after he died. He was making sure that there was someone that was going to cover, that was going to look out for his mom. He was blessing. In another breath, at the end, Jesus said in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was blessing in the last moments before his death. That's what a man of God does. That's what a woman of God does. It's someone who is keen to the blessing of others, who is concerned with the blessing of other people. Why? Because that's what God himself wants to do. He wants to bless. And he wants us to take on that characteristic To bless, to consider everyone else's best interest Now the world doesn't seem to get that about God In an old Seinfeld episode called The Pilot George Costanza is talking with Jerry Seinfeld And in the episode he says I know that just when everything's going right God's going to take it all away from me And Jerry says I thought you didn't believe in God And George says Well I believe him for the bad stuff and so much of the time that's how people will view God He's going to come down hard on me Hey God's entire intention toward you toward me is to bless us He truly wants the best for us now, things don't always go great We may find ourselves in difficult situations again J- David Jeremiah this morning was talking about his cancer and in fact he did pass away from that didn't he is that? Someone else who knows about it, you don't know, you're looking, okay, do you even know who David Jeremiah is? Okay, did he pass away? No. No? He's still with us. Good, okay. (laughs) Glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Because he looked good this morning on TV. I didn't know if it was a rerun. (laughs) But he was talking about getting cancer. And he said, people come up to him and say, why did God give you cancer? And he said, you know, I got cancer because I'm human. Because I'm made of flesh and blood. That's why I got cancer. Now God can use it, He can use it to prove me, but He always has my best interest in mind. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things. And you can look in your own lives and you can pick out the worst possible thing that has happened to you in the last week or month or year. And I guarantee you that for, if you're called, if, if you love the Lord, I guarantee you it will work out for good. And you may not see it now and you may not see it tomorrow and it may take years to see it. But all things work together for good because that's God's heart toward His people. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And so the man or woman of God seeks to bless. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Rick, if we're going to spend that much time on each verse, we're going to be here all afternoon. Okay, I'm going to be here for tea services anyway. Next verse, reading on, verse 2. Moses said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came from the midst of the 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand. And they followed in your steps. Everyone receives your reward. Moses charged us with a law of possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun talking about the Lord King in Jeshurun remember Jeshurun is the people when the heads of the people were gathered the tribes of Israel together now as he's heading into this this blessing he reminds the people of something that happened in the midst of the powerful appearance of God on Mount Sinai he says in verse 3 indeed he loves the people what you just shared this morning he loves the people This God who would bless you would bless you because He loves you. And I need to remember that, especially when things aren't going my way. He loves me. God loves me. I may not know what He's doing. I may not know a whole lot about what's going on in the world. But I know this. He loves me. He loves me. So amazing is the love of God that He calls Israel... He calls Israel two things that just don't fit Israel. The first thing is Jeshurun. We've talked about Jeshurun. It means upright ones. And you might say, but Israel wasn't upright. Exactly. Israel was not upright, but God's love was so great that He chose to see them that way, even though they weren't that way. And He does the same for us. He chooses to see us in a way that we are not, at least not yet. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now listen, because Paul says something else here that, that intrigues me. He says that he made us alive with Christ. you can say, okay, great, I was made alive with Christ. But Paul goes on and says, and he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now hang on a second. I'm not in the heavenly places. I haven't gotten there yet. And yet so sure is God, so great is his love that he chooses to see us as there. We have already, as far as God's concerned, arrived. The travel there, the journey, that's just a byproduct. We're going to get there. So great is the Father's love. He sees us there. And we are righteous and we're made alive by the sacrifice of Jesus, even though we wear this flesh. So great is his love. So Moses calls them Jeshua, he also calls them, an interesting phrase in verse 3, holy ones. He says, your holy ones are in your hand. So great is the Father's love that Moses connects Israel to the heavenly host of holy ones. Look back a little bit. It says in verse 2 that God came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. And this is one of the few places in all of scripture where that phrase holy ones applies to those who are already in heaven. It applies to the angelic host around God. And Moses takes this and he says, you came from holy ones and you appeared to your holy ones. Now this would be almost comical if you were standing there with Moses looking out over the children of Israel at this moment. Because the children of Israel were far from holy. They were a messed up, scraggly people. And yet Moses said, you came from holy ones to holy ones. This is what God's love does. He looks at us, not as we are, but as he intends for us to be. Holy ones. The Hebrew word is Kadosh. And Colossians chapter 1, by the way, we're connected to this. Colossians 1:12 says, "Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the holy ones. Your translation might say saints, Saints. The Greek word for that is Hagias. It's one of my favorite Greek words in the New Testament because of what it means prophetically. The very first prophecy ever penned that we have written down in scripture was written by a man named... Does anyone know who was the first prophet that we have any writing of? Anyone know? Enoch. Enoch. Because Jude tells us that in the, what is it, the fifth or sixth generation from from Adam along comes this man Enoch. And Enoch prophesied. And we wouldn't have known that if we didn't get this wonderful little letter from Jude. But Jude says that Enoch was the 7th generation. In the 7th generation from Adam, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The first prophecy written in Scripture is about the second coming of Jesus and that second coming involves Jesus coming back with his holy ones and holy ones gang in the, Old, in the New Testament hagios means saints saints when the Lord comes back he comes back with his saints who are his saints it's the church well, I don't get that at all, Rick. Well, then you need to pick up our Revelation series and study it through for yourself and you'll get it. It's awesome. It's an amazing truth that's that's embedded there in Scripture. But the bottom line, games is the Lord wants to bless because the Lord loves His people and He invites us to be men and women of God who are concerned with blessing. Well, let's look at the blessing quickly here. Verse 6. Moses begins to go tribe by tribe And he says May Reuben live and not die Nor his men be few And this regarding Judah So he said Hear O Lord the voice of Judah And bring him to his people With his hands he contended for them And may you be a help Against his adversaries Now if you know anything about The children of Israel The sons of Israel And those twelve tribes You know we just skipped somebody And I didn't catch that on my own Jonathan had to bring that up to me himself which I really appreciated. We skip Simeon. If you look at any listing of the tribes of Israel, the children of Israel, it goes Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Levi. It goes on down the list. Simeon's gone. And if you look all the way through chapter 33, Simeon is not there. He is absent. He's overlooked. Now is that just an oversight on God's part? God doesn't make oversights. God knows exactly what He's doing. Moses begins this blessing. And you Bible students, you may recall something about Simeon. Simeon received at the time of Jacob's blessing back in Genesis 49, not so much a blessing as a curse. Let me read it to you. Genesis 49. Jacob, Israel, is speaking of Simeon and he says, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And so, when it comes to this blessing of each of the tribes, Simeon gets skipped. Simeon is still a tribe. They will come into the land with everybody else. But guess what? If you look at your Bible maps of the places of Israel, Simeon doesn't have their own portion in the land. And you might look and go, well, wait a minute. I I can see that he does. In fact, if you've got a Bible map, you can look at it right now. You can see right here in my Bible map that the little purple area down here is Simeon. So Simeon obviously got their own portion. But you'll notice something. Simeon is surrounded by Judah. Because Simeon didn't get their own portion of the land. Simeon got some of the portion of Judah's land within Judah. Because of this curse that goes all the way back to Jacob. Why? Because Simeon cruelly murdered the entire town of Shechem. Wiped them out. To pay back in revenge for something that had happened to his sister. You can read about that toward the end of Genesis. But so angry was Israel about that. Jacob, their father, he said, For that you get no inheritance, Simeon. And so what's happening here when we see Simeon skipped in chapter 33 is Moses is honoring the original blessing of Jacob. And that's why Simeon isn't there. Be careful, gang, about anger. Because anger scatters a family. Anger will scatter your offspring. Moses skips from Reuben to Judah, saying, The Lord cause Reuben to prosper. And for Judah, give him help against his enemies. Why does Judah get this singular blessing? It's an interesting one. He says, May you be a help against your enemies. And, and I just want to suggest to you that Judah, being the first tribe out as they marched, was the first tribe that would face the enemies. They were the ones that were going to take the hardest hit if it came to battle or warfare. In those 40 years, as the tribes moved out, Judah went first. And oftentimes, that's exactly what happens. Those who go first get hit the hardest. Those who lead, they take the wounds and the bruises. And so Moses says, May you be a help against Judah's adversaries. I wonder if the other tribes, when it was all being set up, And they were told who was going to go out first and who was going to be last and where they were going to be in the lineup. I wonder if the other tribes looked at Judah and said, why do they get to go first? How come Judah gets to lead the march? That's not really fair. Why can't our people go first? Why do they get to lead the way and not us instead? I think we need to be careful what we ask for. Because the one who goes out first faces the greater danger. And it's never what we think. Anytime a person is called to step out first, he needs this blessing. Anytime someone desires, and anytime among us you desire to step into a place of leading. Whether it's in your family, or among friends, or in the church. Anytime someone comes into a place of leading, they need this blessing. May you be a help, Lord, against his adversaries. Because I guarantee you, the adversaries will come. Take down the leaders, and the flock will suffer. Strike the shepherd, Zechariah prophesied, and the sheep will scatter. And so often, Satan will go after and send adversaries against Those who lead. Gang, the first and greatest thing a leader can do for the people is to contend with them, or for them, with his hand look back at what he said for Judah also. He says, with his hands he contended for them. I think that's an interesting phrase. With his hands, in other words, Judah would fight for all of Israel. Judah would go first into the battle and contend and fight with his hands. And leaders, that's the same thing we are called to do. And I'm speaking specifically to those who are shepherds at the bridge, but also to anyone who steps into ministry leadership. Contend for the people with your hands. Put it this way. Peter said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Contend for the people with your hands. Fight for the people in prayer. By the way, um, I, I need to mention to you all this is just a side note. Just before Thanksgiving, I sent out about 25 or 30 servant questionnaires for those who are we're looking into and talking to you about the possibility of being servants by role deacons diakonos, at the bridge and I want to ask you to pray for this process and pray for those who have received questionnaires and if you by the way don't personally receive a questionnaire and are not being asked right now to step into that role of servant please don't take it as a slap in the face it may be because you're recent or new to the bridge it may be for whatever maybe just that I don't like you very much and, no it has nothing to do with that and I'll tell you one of the struggles in leading a fellowship is avoiding the whole popularity thing and truly praying to the Lord and saying Lord who do you want in these roles who do you want to lead and so we send out some of those and and, and it's our intention that we have a growing and dynamic group of people that it's not just going to be a small group that are called to be deacons or servants and we're going to call them servants because I want to get away from the deacon mentality because I think it's a little twisted in the church let's just call them servants that's what they are But as we grow in that and develop that and people come into those roles and serve there, I want to see that continue to grow. But pray for that process that's going on right now. Pray for those who would go first. And as we just said, don't be one of the tribes who are sitting back going, well, why don't I get to go first? Well, I'll tell you what. If you go first, you're going to be... You're going to have the adversaries come against you. And so we need prayer for anyone who would step out and go first. May you be a help against his adversaries. Verse 8, rolling on. Of Levi, he said, let your Thummim and your Urim belong to your godly man whom you proved at Massah with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. And that's why Levi became the tribe of the priests. You may remember, after Moses came down the hill, down the mountain, after receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people were in absolute disarray, worshiping, dancing, and praising around the golden calf. Moses said, Those who stand with God come to my side. And Levi stood with the Lord. Even to the point that Levi put the rest of Israel to the sword. Friends, family, brothers. For the sake of the Lord. And so God said, Because you will stand with me, whatever the cost. You will be the priestly tribe. And so they received this blessing. Now, something interesting to note, Levi, as a tribe of priests, had the high priest. The high priest would come through the tribe of Levi, and he had what here is referred to as the Urim and the Thummim. I again remind you, it's not the Uma Thurman. it's the Urim and the Thummim. What are those? We've only had, been able to conjecture. Uh, some say they were a black and a white stone They were held in the breastpiece of the high priest. And and they would roll those stones, kind of like rolling the dice. I don't think that's what it was. More likely, it was the stones in the breastpiece itself that would, in some way, indicate the will of God. You may remember the breastpiece piece on the high priest. Outfit had 12 jewels, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, precious stones. And Urim means lights. Thummim means perfections, the lights and the perfections. And the the Urim and Thummim, however they were used, were used for discerning and understanding God's will. But also in that phrase, Urim and Thummim, lights and perfections, we see yet another picture of Jesus to whom we go to learn and understand God's will today. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. You want to know God's will? For the Israelites, they had to go to the high priest. And he had to consult using the Urim and the Thummim. But for you and I, we have the light and the perfection in Jesus Christ. We run to the Son. If you want to know God's will, you stay close to the breastplate. That is, sit close to the heart of Jesus. Pray to Him. Seek Him out. Listen to Him to understand the will of the Father. Now God named Levi the priest again because they took God at his word. We see that back in Exodus 32. And the Lord gave them the important role of teaching. Now verse 10 going on, the next blessing, or or continuing the blessing for Levi. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob, your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance And accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him. Shatter the loins? Yeah. Anyone who would rise up against those who are teaching your word, Lord, shatter their loins. In other words, make it impossible for them to reproduce. Stop their line. That's how important the word of the Lord is. God wants his word to reproduce and to continue and not to be stopped. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him And those who hate him So that they will not rise again Verse 12 Of Benjamin he said May the beloved of the Lord Dwell in security by him Who shields him all the day And listen this is interesting He dwells between his shoulders He dwells between his shoulders The last phrase here is an important one It speaks for the first time Of the place that the Lord would choose to dwell Where's that? That city in Israel. Now remember, Israel's not in the land yet. They don't even know really about, they haven't conquered and taken over that great city, Jerusalem. But this indicates that Jerusalem would indeed be the place where God would dwell, where His Spirit would enter in that temple that Solomon built, and dwell among the people. Well, how do you know that from this phrase? He dwells between His shoulders. If you look at a map of Benjamin and how they were laid out, Benjamin settled in the southern part of the land, and is shaped kind of like two shoulders. And in the midst of the shoulders, the Lord would dwell... And that's right where Jerusalem is. There in the southern part of the land. I think that's fascinating. We see the precise location of what would later be the location of of, of the temple there in Jerusalem. So going on, then it says of Joseph, and remember, Joseph would be the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. But of Joseph, he said, blessed of the Lord be his land. With the choice things of heaven, and with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath... And with the choice yield of the sun, and with the choice produce of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. By the way, we, we hope that the favor of God dwells in the bush even today, our President George Bush. Let it come to the head of Joseph, and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Talking about Joseph. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. Interesting, Joseph gets an amazing blessing here. God loved Joseph. And all of this that is given to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, is because of Joseph. Because Joseph had such a great faith. And God looks at the man of faith and says, You have such great faith, and I'm so pleased with you, and my favor is on you, and I am going to not only bless you, but I will bless your children as well. I will bless your offspring, your sons, your daughters And those of you who have children, or those of you who will at some point in the future have children, understand your faith will be a blessing to your offspring in ways you can't possibly imagine. Verse 18. Uh, No, we skipped a verse, didn't we? From the first one, let's see. Those who are the ten thousands of Ephraim and those who are the thousands of Manasseh. Now, verse 18. Of Zebulun, he said... Rejoice Zebulun in your going forth And Issachar in your tents They will call peoples to the mountain And there they will offer righteous sacrifices Now watch this They will draw out of the abundance of the seas And the hidden treasures of the sand Another interesting phrase here Verse 19 The hidden treasures of the sand I'll just tell you this by way of understanding That Zebulun and Issachar Rested in the Jezreel Valley Which is today called the Valley of Megiddo It's where Armageddon, Armageddon, will happen one day. But Zebulun goes all the way from Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo, up to Mount Carmel, and then out toward the coast, which today is Haifa. Now, history buffs, you might be interested in this. It was at Haifa that a man by the name of J.D. Rockefeller, the Standard Oil multi-millionaire, Kind of the Bill Gates of his day. Rockefeller built a massive oil pipeline beginning there in Haifa and running into, present day, Iraq. He went to Iraq to get oil for one reason. Rockefeller was reading Genesis. And in reading Genesis, he saw that it mentioned Tarpus in Babylon. And so he began to send his oil workers to Iraq, to the region of Babylon, because if there were tar pits there, there must be oil there. And of course, as usual, as always, the Bible was right. And Rockefeller struck oil there. And his massive takers then were sent to Haifa on the seacoast of Zebulun to retrieve what Moses calls the hidden treasures of the sand. No one would have known at the point that Moses said that, that there was oil beneath the sands of Iraq. But God knew. And the prophecy is clear. The hidden treasures of the sand would be drawn out. And there's a connection there to Zebulun because it's right through Zebulun that you'd have to go to get to those hidden treasures. Interesting. Verse 20 of Gad, he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm and also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there is the ruler's portion. For there the ruler's portion was reserved And he came with the leaders of the people And he executed the justice of the Lord And his ordinances with Israel A good word for Gad A good blessing for Gad Gad was likened to a lion Because historically Gad as a tribe Was known to be fierce in battle And to fight hard So he's called a lion And they had a great sense of justice in the land But watch this Verse 22 says Of Dan Of Dan He said Dan is a lion's wealth That leaps forth from Bashan. Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. What's a whelp? It's a cub. There's a comparison here. Gad is a lion who fights. Dan's a little lion's cub who hops about. He's not a full grown lion, he's a wimpy lion. And Gad, being full on lion, Dan was a scared little cub. See, we know something about Dan. We know that Dan was given some beautiful land in the southern part of of Israel. But instead, they left up from Bashan, down there in the southern area, up to the north, which was a bad move. They moved up there because it seemed to be an easier land, a more beautiful land, a nicer place to stay. And Dan headed north to live up there right on the border of Israel where idolatry was intense and Dan would be the first tribe to be completely lost to idol worship. Even today, you can go to Israel and you can see Tell Dan a dig, an archaeological find where some of the remnants of the city of Dan was up there where they erected an altar and put up a false calf to worship there in Dan. And Assyria came and when they attacked Israel in the north, took Dan first. Dan, the little lion's cub that never fully matured into a lion. Verse 23 tells us of Nathalie. He said, O oh, Nathalie, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea and the south. That phrase, satisfied with favor, speaks literally of content. To be satisfied with favor is just to be content with the Lord. I like that. Verse 24 going on. I'm going to hurry. I know you're shivering here. Of Asher, he said, More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers. May he dip his foot in oil. And indeed, if you look at Asher in in the way things are laid out there in Israel, Asher in the land is long, kind of like a leg. Like a lake, and at the foot of Asher, at the foot of Asher, touching down to the sea, he touches the the land touches Mount Carmel. And even to this day, oil speculators are exploring this area to see if maybe the toe of Asher is an oil field. Because of this verse, it's interesting. He says, Asher, may he dip his foot in oil, and it would not surprise me in the least. If they're on Mount Carmel or in that region, someday in the near future, oil was discovered. But he dipped his foot in oil. So a blessing for Asher. Your locks will be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. Going on to verse 24. Now the blessing's given to all the people. Or verse 26, sorry. The blessing's given. He says, Now there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in His majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And He drove out the enemy from before you and said, Destroy. And so Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, O people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your health and the sword of your majesty so your enemies will cringe you you, and you will tread upon their high places. Moses gives this tremendous blessing, turns and climbs the mountain to number three in our outline, to his own burial, the burial of Moses. Let's say goodbye to Moses here as we look at verse 1, chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo on the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all of Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And I've mentioned to you this before, when Moses saw all this, it had to be supernatural. Because from the top of Mount Pisgah you could not see all the things listed here in this passage. You couldn't see all the way from from Zoar and the Negev up to Gilead and Naphtali. You couldn't see all of the land. And yet God gave Moses a supernatural vision to where he could stand on that mountain and look out over the land and see things impossible to see. Moses saw it all. God was true to his word. And the Lord said to him, verse 4, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And this verse, I've told you before, it fascinates me. And he buried him. Who buried him? God did he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor and no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. In other words this was an energetic old coot. He could see as well as he could as a young man. He had the energy he had the fierceness he had the strength and yet the time came For him to die and be buried. And so verse 8. The sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. And Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him. And did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now listen, we're almost done. Hang in there. (laughs) Moses, this great prophet, This man of God, with whom, by the way, we've been journeying for the last three years. Five books, all written, penned by the hand of Moses, the Bible itself tells us. This wonderful, awesome person bundled it and was not able to go into the promised land. He blew it. This great man of God, the first person to be called the man of God, blew it, bungled it, and ends up buried and not going into the promised land at all. But here's the grace of the Lord. Because the next time we see Moses, and we do see Moses again in Scripture, he's in the promised land. He's standing On the Mount of Transfiguration in Israel, Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, he's there with Jesus. Do you remember the story? Jesus goes up the mountain with his disciples, with the three of them, Peter and James and John, and he starts talking there with, with Moses and Elijah in the Promised Land. I think it was probably the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon. But as Moses and Jesus is up there, Peter looks up, and, and, and James and John, and they see there's Moses, and there's Elijah, and they're in the land. And I, that's just awesome to me. He's buried outside of the land. He's not allowed to go into the land, but by the grace and the mercy of God, when Jesus is present, Moses is in the land. What were they talking about? Probably at that point, they were probably talking about Jesus' imminent departure from the earth. Probably talking about being encouraged, Jesus was, by Elijah and Moses to what he was going to face. Literally talking about Jesus coming Exodus, and who better to talk about an Exodus than Moses. So Moses is there with Jesus. He's in the promised land. But I want you to think about this. He's buried opposite Beth-Peor. And twenty-five years after the burial twenty-five, sorry, twenty-five hundred years after the burial of Moses, Jude, once again, our friend Jude the prophet reveals something amazing about Moses and his grave, and an argument that rose up over that grave. Jude verse nine ...tells us that Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. One of the most obscure verses in the scriptures. You read that verse and you go, What? Apparently, there was an argument that happened between the archangel Michael and Satan... And this argument was, I don't know exactly what it was about, except that it was about the body of Moses. We don't know why or what it was that was said. All we know is that Michael took the high ground, and he didn't say, Satan, you're a jerk. Satan, you're a loser. He didn't try to curse Satan himself. He said, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> Not my issue, it's, it's, it's the Lord's issue. The Lord rebuke you. But the argument was over the body of Moses. Why would the devil be arguing about the body of Moses. Why would the devil want anything to do with the body of Moses? Because as always with Satan, he wants to sidetrack the plans of God. And if he can sidetrack God's plans, if he can mess up prophecy... If he can keep from happening The things that he himself can read in scripture And see are supposed to happen If he can block anything Then he can mess up the promises of God And at the end Satan can say You don't keep your word You said you'd keep your word You didn't keep your word Look this problem You said this would happen here And it didn't happen here If he can block it That's why when Jesus was born So many children were massacred Stop the coming of Messiah And you mess up the plans of God That's why all the way back All the way back in Egypt, the Israelite children were persecuted. That's, by the way, the reason for anti-Semitism throughout all of history. If you can destroy the Jewish people, then God can't fulfill His promises to the Jewish people. Prophecy's messed up, and God doesn't keep His word. And that's Satan's plan. Mess it up. What does that have to do with the body of Moses? Hey, if you can get the body of Moses out of there... And I'm, this, is, this is my surmise, okay? I'm not saying this is absolute truth. This is what I believe. It's what I think. Rick spots here. But Revelation chapter 11, and I saw you mouth that a minute ago, Hunter. You were going, Revelation, right? Yes, right. Revelation chapter 11, we see Moses again. Now, it doesn't say his name, but I'm personally convinced for many reasons that one of the two witnesses that will show up midway through the tribulation period is Moses. Moses and Elijah. Why? I won't go into it right now. Many reasons. But Moses is there. Witnessing. And if Satan could have gotten a hold of the body of Moses, if he knew where it was, if he could have messed up the grave, gotten a hold of the body, somehow in his twisted way of thinking, he could stop from happening what was bound to happen, that Moses again would rise and would preach and would prophesy there in Jerusalem during that last seven years during the last three and a half the tribulation period now that's surmise on my part and I I realize that we're going to have a discussion about that and again i point you toward the revelation study that we've done you can get that on MP3 on a CD but what Satan fails to understand is simply this you cannot thwart God's plans Because what God tells us is going to happen from God's perspective has happened. It's a done deal. Prophecy is not what might happen. Prophecy is what God has already seen happen. It's complete. It's done. You can't sidetrack God's plans. You can't diffuse them. And listen, because this is the news. This is what I want you to take home this morning. You can't bungle God's plans in any way, shape, or form. Which is really good news for me because I'm bungling things all the time. We started out worship this morning. You had the words for the first song were the words for the second song. I bungled it. And it happens all the time. Little things that we do, silly things like that. But gang, we bungle it big time in the thing in our lives, don't we? Find ourselves, we're at the height of our spirituality and our righteousness and everything is going great and we bungle it. But guess what? Even your bungling now cannot, cannot destroy the grace of God for you and your life. He's still going to get you in to the promised land. It's great news. I have one last thing to tell you and we're going to be done. On uh, on Saturday, we went out to get our Christmas tree just yesterday. And uh, of course, the same thing happens every year. We get to the Christmas tree lot, and I get out of the car and I start walking toward the trees. And I'm looking around at all the other, you know, guys who are walking in to get their trees, and, and they all have their great workman's gloves, and they're all dressed for it. And I'm, you know, in my nice sweater and jeans, and I have no gloves. I'm thinking, what am I doing? And I said, Cheryl, next year would you remind me to bring some gloves? So we go out there, and the, the ground is wet. And we find the tree that we like, and I've got the little saw that they provide for you. And I get down there under the tree to saw it. And the trunk is like, (laughs) it's like that big. So I go, I'm a man. I'm going to do this, you know. So we put the little piece of wood down. I'm on my knees on the wood and I'm just sawing. I'm, I'm recognizing, you know, being in my 40s now, my knees don't appreciate being knelt on anymore whatsoever. And I'm sawing this thing and sawing. And it's not going anywhere. It's just staying there. And it's exhausting. And, and I'm thankful my son Corey was there because I was like, okay, Corey, I want you to have some opportunity to try this out, you know. And, uh, Maybe you can cut down the tree a little bit. Help your dad out here, you know. And, and so Corey and I finally, we got the tree cut down. And it, it did have a big trunk. But I was thinking just this morning. That trying to saw that Christmas tree, how how much strength it takes, and, and how little strength I have. God buried Moses. Have you ever dug a grave? I mean, I hope you haven't had to. Have you ever just dug a pit, maybe around your house or in your property? It amazes me that for all the I can dig and dig and dig and think I've gotten down at least six feet and I've got like six inches, you know? it, it takes strength. It takes, it takes a degree of, of, of literally physical strength in your arms. Why am I telling you this? Because for the bundling and the blessing and the burial of Moses, there's one last thing to take home today. And that's the biceps of God. The biceps of God. Would you look back at verse 27? The eternal God is a dwelling place Now listen And underneath are the everlasting arms What an awesome statement Underneath are the everlasting arms The arms of God You ever wonder what God could bench press? I mean the size of God's biceps must be massive Talk about God's gym I mean he is the one Whose arms are underneath us This is awesome God doesn't just cover us His arms carry us Les started talking about the love of God at communion and once again I am just so stunned because the message I believe the Lord wants you to take home today is He loves you so much that even though He covers you though you may fall He picks you up and carries you we talk an awful lot in Christianity in fact someone put it this way the Christian life is walking and falling down and walking and falling down and walking and falling down all the way to heaven that's Christianity the problem is we focus so much on the falling down part you don't have to worry so much about the falling down part when you recognize the arms that are underneath you that carry you, that bear you along the way. That is the love of God. That He would cover me and protect me and love me so much that He would wrap His arms underneath me to carry me and bring me home. And Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. And he's talking to Israel. And he says, Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters, your daughters, will be carried in the arms. The arms of God. The arms of love. And these same arms, these same biceps, gang, they spread wide and they bear you and I to salvation. And it doesn't matter how much we've bungled it. And it doesn't matter how blessed we may think we are or even how buried we may feel in our lives. The truth is this. The biceps of God are big. And they are spread out. From one end of the cross... To the other end of the cross to bear us to our Father's side. The last thing you see as you exit the book of Deuteronomy is Moses not leading the people in, but there's someone who will lead the people in, Joshua. And we're going to get into Joshua. In fact, next week, I'll give you just a little uh, commercial for next Sunday. We're going to do a prophetic overview of the entire book of Joshua. We're going to cover 24 chapters in one morning prophetically and see what it points to. And it's amazing because Joshua is that picture of Jesus and as we're told in John 1.17 last verse the law was given through Moses but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord and that concludes the book of Deuteronomy let's pray together Father we thank you for the blessing of this day and even Lord for the chill of this morning we thank you because it reminds us Lord we are alive and we're alive in you And we are born and we are carried by you. And we are loved by you in such an amazing way. Father, would you just settle that love in our hearts. As we go out today, remind us of your great love for us. And know and be aware of those that are underneath us this morning, Lord. Carrying us and bearing us home. And if there's anyone among us who who feels like their life is not borne up by the Lord, maybe you're not a Christian, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if that's the case, I invite you to pray this with me. Lord, forgive me for my sins and carry me. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus, you died on the cross. For my sins, you took my place. And I believe that you were resurrected to life again. Now, Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. And Jesus, thank you so much for spreading your arms wide for us. We just pray in your precious name this morning. Amen.